and welcome everyone to episode number 24 of our NCAA social series. I'm Andy Katz. Pleased to be joined by the NCAA's chief medical officer, Dr. Brian Hainline, who's been with me from the beginning here of this pandemic. And pleased to rejoin by Dr. Colleen Kraft from Emory University, associate chief medical officer at Emory and also part of the NCAA's coronavirus advisory board. And uh, Dr. Kraft, I want to start with you. Uh, you were on with us early on. Uh, I think a lot of us thought we would be in a different place at the beginning of September. Not that you have this answer, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Why are we still in a very chaotic place here at the beginning of September? I think our guidance really overall has been chaotic from a from a federal level. I think it's been confusing. I think uh, it's it's something that I, as somebody that had been preparing for pandemics for much of six years after Ebola, thinking about a respiratory pandemic, you know, the thought of the public not actually wanting to abide by public health recommendations was not something on my radar. And I also thought in March, uh, or actually in February, when we started meeting and I was invited to join discussions with Dr. Hainline, I, I really thought that we could be talking about fall sports that we would be returning to sort of a normal and, and like a real normal. And so I think that the lack of, of uh, you know, universal mask mandates and different things like that have led to us really being in a position where we're still seeing a lot of waves and surges all over the United States. So Dr. Hayline, um, there are basically two schools of thought here. Uh, you know, you can make the argument in this politically charged country right now, we live in two countries almost, and within athletics, it's almost like we are in two different countries. The SEC, the ACC, the Big 12, they're planning on playing college football. We've already seen college football start uh, within the last two weeks. The Big 10, the Pac-12, the MAC, the Mountain West, and others have chosen not to and not play any fall sports. Why are there two schools of thought within Division One? Well, I think, Andy, with a, a, a lot of emerging um, disease conditions or even those that are not, you people can look at the same data and, and come out with different sorts of ways to, to handle a situation. It, I mean, in my profession of neurology, that happens all the time. Surgery, not surgery, wait, don't wait. Um, in this case, I think one thing that's very important to stress is that with all of the uh, uh, football schools that are considering to play, they are looking at the same core recommendations that those that chose not to play. And, and, and there's a document in, in, in the Autonomy 5 Medical Advisor Group with the NCA panel. We are 100% unified. And we gave the five reasons for discontinuing sports. So those haven't changed. But what the SEC and the ACC and the Big 12 have, have and others have said, well, they're looking at that and saying, well, maybe we don't need to make a decision right now. Let's ride this out a little bit and, and see if the circumstances change. And so what we have seen is that the circumstances have started to change. Uh, one thing is that the infection rates have leveled off. They're still not where we would like them to be, um, but, but they're not increasing dramatically. And the other thing that's shifting is testing. So the testing paradigms are, are changing and that may allow us to make different sorts of, of decisions. And so, you know, the other important thing is, is that, you know, the, the Big Ten decision, well, this was made by Big Ten presidents and, and chancellors and, and they look at that data and the same thing with the Pac-12. So it's not football coaches making the decisions, it's not athletic directors, it's 
It's the presidents and chancellors of the university and they're making informed decisions. And so that's very often what, what happens in medicine and, and in society at large. Uh, we're going to get to testing here momentarily. Uh, Dr. Kraft, uh, you know, you're not at an SEC school, but you're in the heart of SEC country uh, in Atlanta. Um, to Dr. Hainline's point, how much of this is more about risk tolerance versus disputing actual facts that are being provided by this panel and, and all the other medical uh, uh, experts around the country? Well, I think that Dr. Hainline said this very well, that people can look at the same information and want to try different things and try different solutions. And so, you know, there's a lot of prevailing ideas that young people, younger people are less at risk of having severe disease from this, from in, in sort of a, um, you know, mortality, morbidity statistic standpoint. So if you're looking at sort of different outcomes, you might say, well, I'm okay with it because it's not gonna cause X, Y, Z. And so I think that, uh, you know, that's really one of the reasons that we're sort of seeing these different pathways. I think one of the things though, unfortunately, that this virus is teaching us is that we can choose our pathway, but it's still gonna behave in the way that it behaves in every state and every city across the United States. So I think that, you know, we're getting a lot of immediate feedback or I would say it usually takes about a month to see if you're, you're um, the way that you have planned and are trying to contain the virus is actually gonna work. Uh, you, you, you get feedback by the number of cases that you end up with. No, Dr. Andy, Hayline. Well, uh, Andy, I just, wanna go, I just wanna go back on, on, on your question originally too to, to Dr. Kraft and, and you know, about possible denial of facts versus looking at things differently. The one thing I, I want everyone to understand, so I've worked very closely with the, the SEC, the Big 12, the ACC, and really all of the Autonomy 5 conferences, they all have medical advisory groups, and these are all exceptional individuals. These are physicians and scientists that really want to make the right decisions. And, and what's interesting is that they were all part of a, a, a cohesive group, the Autonomy 5 medical advisory group, and their decisions in terms of, you know, the final recommendations were exactly aligned with the NCAA decision. So, so I'm really highly confident um, that from the decision-making point of view with regard to football, no one's denying any facts. Again, it's, it's you know, look, highly respected individuals that are looking at the data. And, and yeah, some of it's, you know, what you take a risk if you do this and you take a risk if you, if you don't do that. And, and so the, the sort of tolerance you have, and again, you know, playing it out. And, and I think Dr. Kraft said it best. Um, ultimately, yeah, the virus is gonna decide, but, but, but meanwhile, we, we, we do the best what we can, you know, in terms of assessing the data. Well, and that's the thing, and it drives me crazy. And I gotta just say this, that, you know, for those that love to critique and say that not all the information was provided and, you know, different conferences didn't have the same information. We've been doing this program for five months, we've been issuing this information. And if you've been paying attention, the information is out there. It's just like whatever issue you have personally, you may get a second opinion. One doctor, as you said, Dr. Anland may say, have surgery. The other one may say, no, try PT. So it's the exact same thing. And that's one last topic before we get to testing is on myocarditis. You know, that's now a hot topic. One set of, of medical advisors will say, no, it's too high a risk. Others have said, we're not seeing it. Dr. Kraft, Dr. Hanlon, if you can comment on that as another issue where it's one fact and two different opinions 
on whether or not it affects young athletes. Right, so I'll, I'll talk about it from sort of a, a, a global level. I think I've been quoted before maybe on this program and saying that one case is too many for myocarditis. But then when we think about sort of this risk tolerance that you sort of suggested earlier, which is how, how important is it to, to have people engage in something that's, that's really important to them, uh, these universities, uh, the region, the United States, and you know there are lots of decisions we make. We don't think about influenza infection very much, or the or the consequences of influenza infection because we don't have a lot of close personal experience about it if we're not in healthcare. And so I think it's really hard to know. You know, I, I think even a risk of one is concerning to me as an individual provider. I think when we think about it over, you know, as as something that's evolving and that we're discovering. Uh, we just had an individual admitted to our hospital recently that had myocarditis, not an athlete. Um, I want you to know it's a heart condition. Right? Yes, thank you. It's a heart, it's an inflammation of your heart. We're still trying to understand if it's directly from the virus or if it's the inflammatory state that, that the virus creates in your body that then leads to your heart muscle being damaged. And I think that it's really hard to know, you know, we're continuing to describe a phenomenon as this virus is progressing through our society. And so it's really hard to know if, man, if we exposed, you know, we'll know in a year if we expose 100,000 people to this, we get one case of myocarditis. It's a lot easier to make decisions about athletes and different things as you have the benefit of hindsight. But we don't have that benefit yet. And so as we're progressing forward, you know, we're, we're trying to balance all of this data sort of at the same time we're building building the car as we're driving it yeah and i, I and and to take it one step further so we we updated our our guidance as we're learning more about this but i think it's important for everyone to know that you know we've been talking about myocarditis with viral syndromes in sports medicine for over 30 years we know that any symptomatic viral syndrome and we never really talked about asymptomatic viral syndromes can cause a myocarditis and we always cautioned our athletes against exercise when they had a symptomatic viral syndrome because of myocarditis so this inflammation of the the muscle of the heart but we we are seeing this highly scrutinizing covid more than we ever saw for any other viral syndrome and and the guidance now is yeah if you've had uh, a covid uh, that to return to sport it includes getting an electrocardiogram and, and, a, and a, a blood test called a troponin, which looks at possible damage to the heart muscle, and an echocardiogram, which is a, a, a sound wave test to see if there are pockets of, of fluid and so forth. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's taking it uh, one, one step further. And, and I, I, I think as, well, well, the other important thing I should say is that um, in conjunction with, with uh, two important medical organizations, we're actually starting a cardiac registry. And so that has begun, and so we're following uh, individuals prospectively. So I think the, the possible interaction between the coronavirus that causes COVID-19 and myocarditis is gonna be the best studied uh, uh, interaction in, in, in the history of viral syndrome because it really is getting exceptional scrutiny. All right, so now we gotta shift to testing. That's the elephant in the room here. Um, you know, I, I've heard Dr. Scott Gottlieb, a former member of the Obama, Obama administration, talking about how we're, we're getting closer to that test that could be like a pregnancy test, which obviously could change the landscape of everything. Uh, we've got the saliva test out of Yale uh, that the NBA was using and pushing with the NBA and the NBA PA. Uh, Illinois, 
you know, you could debate how successful they are right now, but they're using something similar to that that they're doing on their campus. So is Georgia Tech near you, Dr. Kraft. So Dr. Hainline and Dr. Kraft, where are we in testing in terms of getting to the point where it's a rapid test, not the same rapid we've had before, but the rapid test that would allow for quicker, uh, you know, basically, you know, return to sport or, and allowing these teams and these players to practice and knowing who has it, who doesn't, just on a much more every couple of days, weekly basis. So I think we're getting close, Andy. We've been speaking about this for, for months and, 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 and the, really the necessity to get rapid diagnostic testing to move sport forward. So, so just a couple of things. Uh, so saliva direct. So that's, you mentioned the University of Illinois and, and that really is what was developed by the MBA in conjunction with Yale University. It doesn't require the same reagent to do the PCR test for, for the virus. It's not a point of care test, meaning it's not something that you do with a machine right in your office. Um, but what University of Illinois did is they, they, they converted their, uh, their, their veterinary lab into a large testing laboratory, and they're able to process 10,000 tests a day um, for, for saliva direct. They're able to you know, test their, their football team on, on a daily basis. They've looked at the sensitivity of saliva direct, and it's probably around 94%. Um, and so that's not perfect, but if you're testing someone on a very regular basis, you don't need a sensitivity of 100% because the mathematical odds of the same person testing negative two days, three days in a row is, is quite improbable. And then the other tests that are emerging are, are the point of care tests. So point of care antigen tests. So that means that you're looking at a protein of, of the virus and even point of care PCR tests. And when those are really widely available and you can get the results within minutes and it's you know for five dollars a pop or something like that that's going to be a, a game changer um but but dr Kraft is much more an expert on on testing than i am and, and has been at the the, the, the front lines and, and working with emory's lab yeah i mean i think you really summarized it well and i was going to say if this is the elephant in the room i've been living with this elephant for a long time so we have been thinking about i i, I think and breathe and eat and live uh, testing for COVID-19. And I think uh, that I did also think much like we would be talking about fall sports uh, in September. Uh, I also thought we would be having uh, very routine tests uh, already developed by now. And so there are a number of initiatives um, that you've already mentioned. There's the point of care tests, um, the saliva direct, which is still a PCR test and maybe really isn't considered rapid, although I think University of Illinois has managed to automate it um, so that we can get it uh, sooner. And there's also the evolution of knowledge about how you can use um, rapid testing or low, lower sensitive testing in asymptomatic or low prevalence populations. And I think that that's, how, that's what I've grown as a laboratorian who's very interested in the best test for each patient. You know, we don't wanna compromise on our sensitivity and specificity. What we've learned during this outbreak is that you are very likely in a low prevalence population to not really have any misses that are gonna be um, cause widespread transmission or that are gonna cause, um, you know, a very serious illness. And so also the frequency of testing helps support that maybe lower sensitivity test that uh, Dr. Hainline was discussing. And so I think that, you know, I've, I've grown as a clinical laboratorian to, to sort of a wider spread idea of, of public health and um, you know, sort of balancing you know, a rapid test 
uh, for a sensitive test, but that being okay if there's repeated testing that's, that's involved. All right, so not to put you on the spot here, Dr. Kraft, but how, how soon do you think we're gonna see this kind of testing uh, widespread in the public space, especially on these university campuses? Well, you're not putting me on the spot because I get asked this every day. Okay. And so I, I do, I, it, it changes every day. I always say every time I give a lecture on any of these things, like I actually gave a lecture um, on saliva direct for individuals on, on when you hear about these things in the news, how you actually evaluate what type of test it is. Because there's always a lot of press about how amazing this is going to be and how much of a game changer it's going to be. Um, but, but actually digging into the details, you have to realize sort of the limitations and benefits of each test. Um, we're also involved at Emory in the RADx program that's funded by NIH, where we're actually kind of being the test kitchen for some of these uh, even preclinical assays for COVID. The whole crux of all this is going to be supply chain. And I know that's a very ungratifying answer, um, but there are so many great tests out there. We just can't get them manufactured quick enough. And so, um, you know, my hope was that the manufacturing stream was going to pick up. NIH has um, been investing through this RADx program and in giving individuals that have very good tests um, that, they, that they have in the preclinical realm that they can, they're investing in them to basically help them operationalize their, um, their uh, supply chain. But that is really what it's gonna come down to. So if you want sort of a when this is gonna happen, I mean, I would have thought it would have happened by now, um, but I think um, I'm hopeful if there's a late peak in the flu season that maybe we'd be able to meet it with the rapid testing. So I'm gonna say for the record, and you know, in, in one month you can come back or three months, but I would say February. I'm sorry, say again? I'm gonna say February, 2021. Is when this is widespread? Yep. Okay. Um, one other aspect of this, you know, this testing as a university is, is at Arizona. I've seen that they've done wastewater. Yes. Um, you know, how prevalent is that on these campuses to sort of snuff out potential outbreaks? Yeah, so it's a really indirect measure. Uh, I, my dad was actually the manager of a wastewater treatment facility, so I have intimate knowledge of what these actually, uh, what this actually means. Those must have been interesting conversations. Yes, yes. Um, he studied, you know, he, he worked with poop. I worked with poop and uh, fecal transplants, so it comes for full circle. Ask. Yeah, so um, uh, anyways, uh, I think it's a great, a great idea. Uh, you know, I love all these ideas. I love the, um, you know, how innovative we're trying to be, but it's, it's really hard to kind of indirectly measure this. Um, you know, the solution to um, is dilution, right, when you think about wastewater. And so uh, there's always sort of this balance of like how much more of one thing than the other. I think it's a compelling way to indirectly find things, but it's, I think it's a hard thing to keep measuring. Um, I think going back to the individual is probably going to be the most reassuring aspect. Um, right. But it's certainly like intermittent testing of wastewater um, could make sense. But right now with the prevalence being so high in some areas, I mean, it's probably always going to be positive. All right. So I want to take what Dr. Kraft just said a moment ago, Dr. Hainline, about February 2021. Um, everyone's all obviously excited about a potential vaccine. I want to take the politics out of it. I'm not going to think about it before November 3rd. Uh, but February 21 of, of this being widespread of, the, of a, a rapid test of this nature versus the timeline of when potentially we could have a vaccine in our arm, not necessarily one that's approved by the FDA. Which one potentially could come first? 
Well, I, I, I think we have to actually not accept either of those options because we need an option really moving in September, October. As we're rolling out basketball and, and we're moving into indoor sports, um, we can't wait for the vaccine issue and, 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 and we can't wait for when everyone is gonna have these rapid diagnostic tests. So that's why we're, you know, there still are like with, with some of the antigen point of care tests, they're not going to be widespread from a public health point of view, but I think they will be much more uh, widespread available at the campus level. So that's one thing we're going to have to work with. And I think saliva direct as, as we get more and more labs that, that can, can do this, or as we become innovative like University of Illinois did, or I, I think there's probably even going to be mobile units that could use the, the technology that say University of Illinois use. So, so there's a lot of possibilities um, between now and say February. And, and so even let's say there's a, there's a vaccine, let's just say that it is tested by the end of this year. Um, you know, it, it takes a long time to really measure the effectiveness and, and to get that rolled out to the general population. So you're still looking into the summer of 2021. So I don't think we can wait for either. We're gonna have to still move quickly with what we have and, 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 and you know, mobilize that. So a, very, a couple of very quick points here I just want to get your thoughts on. I want to just go back to Illinois real quick that I think was fascinating is the technological aspect of the test, which is they have an app at Illinois that says whether or not you're positive or negative before you can enter a building, before you could enter the locker room, the court. Um, how much do we need to get to that point where we all have that kind of access? And Look, I know civil liberties people may and libertarians may come after me on this, but we need to know who's positive, who's negative. If someone near you is this, and I know this has been working in Southeast Asia, but this is happening in Illinois where they have an app. I mean, how much, Dr. Kraft, do we need something like this to know who's positive and who's negative before we even go into an arena, into a classroom? Yeah, so I, I think it's, it's going to be really important if we want to try to move the needle to get to the new normal, right? So I think that, like Dr. Hainline just said, we can't wait for everything to, to sort of line up. If we want to try to get things sooner, we need to kind of be creative, and this is a, a way to be creative. I think one of the things that um, concerns me and what we see in the hospital is we need to make sure that it makes clinical sense as well because I could have been positive you know, a month ago. Well, that shouldn't still flag as positive. So I think there's gonna to have to be some clinical informatics decision-making. Well, I think it has to I think it has to work with a rapid test. Yes. Yeah, you couldn't have had a test like a month ago and have that still on your app. Right. I, but you think they have to work hand in hand? They definitely do, but I'm saying that just from implementing this in our healthcare system, um, it, it sounds very binary and very straightforward, but there's lots of opportunities for glitches. And so I, I don't want to get too operational and detailed um, in this type of setting, but I think, um, I think it's definitely where we need to be. I think, you know, for us, it's, it's temperature screening and a sticker that we wear every day in our healthcare system. Um, I, do, I do think sort of uh, there's a reassurance aspect, but there's also a um, responsibility aspect that comes with that. All right, last thing I want to get to here is what you just brought up, Dr. Hainline. So men's and women's basketball, the plan is more than likely, we'll find out in a couple of weeks from the Division One Council, uh, there's gonna be a new date for the start of the season. The start of the season is supposed to be November 10th. Um, it could be November 25th, could be the first week in December. They could push to Jan 1, but more likely it's gonna be somewhere in that Thanksgiving time period. But they're doing that with the anticipation that we'll be able to play, whether that's in mini bubbles on campuses or neutral sites, 
but the anticipation is to play. And we have to weigh, obviously, the balance of there was no tournament last spring. There was no college football for the majority of conferences. People are getting furloughed and laid off, and the economics are just crushing right now at universities. So there needs to be a season. So how do you balance? They're going to make an announcement when the season should start, and how do you make sure that it's safe and healthy at that time of the year when we don't know what the flu season is going to look like and where this virus is going to be around Thanksgiving? Yeah, and the question really should be expanded beyond infectious disease as well. So there were really important uh, deliberations in, in, in deciding when the season should be. And, and one of the really important reasons for suggesting a delay, of course, the council is going to you know, ultimately weigh in on this, is just the periodization and acclimatization of these athletes. I mean, they just, are they really ready to begin play on, on November 10th? And, and so part of it was allowing them more time to train. So when we talk about sport, you know, we, we talk about the state of, of, of optimal readiness, and that's a physiological state that's both mental and physical. And these athletes, our student athletes, are not in a state of optimal readiness. They're not in the right physical shape. We know that the mental health symptoms and, and disorders are increased relative to baseline. So we have to address all of that before getting into a full season while simultaneously saying, look, the current testing paradigm of once a week just doesn't make sense, especially when you move into basketball and you're moving indoors and, and there's really sustained close contact that is different than in football. So the safety is both physiological and infectious disease. And, and that's being worked out. I mean, there's a lot of really careful thought about that, but it, 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 it's going to have to be both. We have to solve both. Dr. Uh, what was the question again? Well, just the fact that all these things are weighing heavy and there's going to be a decision on the start of the season. We don't know where the virus is going to be. We don't know what flu season will be like and whether or not it'll be that bad if we're not really next to each other a lot and we're wearing masks. Uh, but at the same time, there's going to have to be planning. And so if they make an announcement that the season's going to start around Thanksgiving, um, you know, you're going to have to balance, okay, if we're going to do this, health and safety, but we got to make plans for it over the next uh, eight weeks. So how do you do that? Right. I mean, I think this is what we've been doing since March, to be honest. I think that we have, uh, you know, done our best to sort of watch what we've done, to see what the results of our ac actions are, and then try to build a comfort level around implementing this sport. I think, um, you know, it's, like we've already said, it's really important economically. It's really important for the, the athletes, the universities. And so I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's what needs to happen uh, in order for us to try to take a step in, in the direction of, of playing sports. Um, but, you know, there's a, lot, there's a lot that goes into it. And it seems like every kind of place we turn, there's sort of a new challenge, a new obstacle, a new deadline um, that we try to work with and try to innovate and be creative around in order to sort of have, have something happen again. Well, the bottom line is obviously we're gonna get to a point where we have to plan and if things change, they change. I mean, we've already sort of learned to adapt and go with the flow and be uh, flexible, obviously, since March. Dr. Kraft from Memory University from the NCAA Coronavirus Advisory Panel, appreciate it. It's your second time on the show. We want you back anytime you can come on, obviously, with your incredible knowledge on the subject. Dr. Brian Hainline, appreciate you as always. This is episode 24. If you wanna look at the previous 23 episodes, go to ncaa.org slash social series. They are all archived. And as I've said throughout this show, we've been talking about this. So you cannot say that the 
views and the information has not been out there to advise these universities, these athletic departments, these coaches, and these players. It's been right here every week. Appreciate you all. Stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week.